Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When investigative journalist Bob Henley joined us two months ago on February 24th, to be exact, concerns about COVID-19 were already growing rapidly. Now, although the disease continues to spread, there's a growing debate over when and how restrictions on business and travel may be relaxed and, and the economy restarted. There are also concerns about what path the pandemic is really taking, about the possibility of food shortages, and about where aid is in fact going. Bob Henley covers national and local politics, economics and policy for public radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations. He's been following the crisis with a special focus on New York and New Jersey, the two states with the greatest number of coronavirus cases. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show. Hi, Bob. Hi, Leonard. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm keeping myself isolated, relatively. When when you chose the name for your uh, Twitter handle, Stuck Nation, you couldn't have imagined how prophetic you were being. What did you intend it to mean at that time? Well, at the time, um, I was at WNYC, um, and things were so just kind of... Yeah, exactly. A parallel universe and so far away in time. Uh, and I think I was covering the young people at Occupy Wall Street. I had uh, developed this sense as a beat reporter that even though we were nominally out of the Great Recession, that the places that I was familiar with in Newark and Orange and in so much of, uh, of our region were not recovering. And I saw that the Wells Fargo was continuing to steal homes. I was seeing that people were still falling behind. I was seeing the growth of zombie homes where the banks wouldn't take them over, but they chased the people out. And I said, you know, this is a stuck nation. And I submit to you the degree to which we saw that happening, and what, by the way, set the stage for the election of Donald Trump, um, was was set us up to some degree for uh just how, how deeply this current crisis is, is biting us. Doesn't your work at the chief leader put you in a unique position? Because you're gathering real-time reportage from the civil servants and their unions that are doing most of the cleaning up. Yeah, it is. It was kind of something that just started popping up. Uh, and what I started to notice was a split-screen reality. So I want to say towards the end of March... I was getting both text messages, cell phone messages, and social media indicating that there was something that career EMTs in New York City had never seen before happening like a science fiction movie. And that was these, uh, these cardiac fatal arrests in people's homes. And so uh, the union, uh, the uh, local 2507, which represents EMS workforce and local 3621, which are EMS officers, and these unions also represent the 2507 represents fire inspectors, paramedics. They were seeing this thing in people's homes that reflected something unprecedented. And so uh, the fire department, um, uh, Frank Dwyer, was transparent. Once I expressed I had heard this, and uh, they shared the information that showed comparing uh the dates of, say, April 5th back several days of 2019, those halcyon days, and then to the current year. And what we saw was where there normally would be 20 to 30 fatal cardiac arrests, there was close to 300. 
you know, 250, 260 each and every day. So So should we assume that they were actually COVID-19 deaths? Well, it's it's funny because when you break it down, you can't. We have to be scientific about this. So there's a lot that's going on in the crisis of this pandemic. On one hand, you have individuals who, for whatever reason, put off getting medical treatment. We know that our gender is not very good uh, about going to the doctor. So people may have put it off because they may have had a condition, a chronic condition. Normally, they would have gone to the hospital, but they were concerned about uh, contracting COVID. Um, Kind of like a flashback, if you will, to the 19th century, where uh, people were afraid to go to the hospital because we broadly associated the hospital with death. Then you also had individuals uh, who actually, and this is the most relevant thing in terms of understanding the arc of this pandemic, who had gone to the emergency room, um, stayed in the hospital, and been released, and were being reported in Governor Cuomo's uh, flattening the curve uh, exercise each day as a good news story because they were discharged, but they were going home to die in their home. And so this is when I realized there was a split-screen reality that was emerging and, and there's no doubt both Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy have exercised leadership, the regional cooperation with Governor Lamont and, uh, in, in Connecticut and Governor Wolf in uh, Pennsylvania, all have exercised leadership that we haven't seen at the national level. However, they are up until very recently were managing the crisis in the hospitals. And what the EMTs were saying, uh, frontline workers were saying, the hospital is not the entire story. This disease is happening out in the community beyond the brick-and-mortar perimeter. And so early on, these first-line workers were saying, you've got to get this this fight into the hardest-hit communities, which, by the way, happened to be, no surprise, communities of color, the ones that we had neglected historically in terms of uh, closing hospitals, shrinking the footprint of public health. And so these were the very places that to this day it's being felt the hardest. And so these folks, these blue-collar workers, have been a step ahead of the entire national conversation. And when reporters from other news outlets report, oh, you discovered this, we broke this, they don't own the fact that the word of this came from these civil service unions that put their jobs on the line because they were disclosing what was really happening in the field. And part of this, it gives us a false sense of managerial competency when we look at this because we don't have a sense of the totality of the circumstance we're in. They call it situational awareness. Did news reports on the home heart attacks force the de Blasio administration to concede that they'd been missing hundreds of deaths? And could we have saved a lot of time if we had listened to the people doing the actual work and and not the politicians trying to control the story of of a crisis that that governments had a role in creating. Well, and I think that that's true. And I think that one of the things that will come out of this, is we used to do this thing, uh, governments and uh, first responders are familiar with the concept of tabletop exercises where you think the worst uh, and then you try to anticipate it and you, you examine in the abstraction what's going to happen. And one of the things that's happened is we have a society that has organized information based on a hierarchy of privilege and wealth. Everything, everything is based on that hierarchy. So the more money you have, um, the more names, the more initials after your name, the more money that's spent in education, 
clearly the smartest you must be. And so what we disconnect from is the common sense experience of people who are on the ground. So when you want a picture about the scale of a pandemic, pandemic, who are you going to call? You're going to call the CDC that's actually helped manage us into this disaster, or are you going to call, say, your local undertaker? And that's what I did in the case of New Jersey. I wanted to get a scale of the pandemic there. So what I did was called up the New Jersey Funeral Directors Association, and that story is on Salon. I did it first for Insider and Jay. And this gentleman blew the whistle on all that's going on now by pointing out that the uh, the uh, federal agency that collects the vital statistics is urging and requiring that states change the way that they categorize a coronavirus death so that it's not the primary cause. This is happening since April 15th. And so what emerges from this is the fact that they are in the process right now, as we're talking about this great national challenge, of disappearing it statistically. So you, you interviewed uh, George Kelder, the CEO and executive director of the New Jersey State Funeral Directors Association, and also Mike Lenot the executive director of the New York State Funeral Directors Association. Right, right. Now, he said we're seeing four to six times the normal number of at-home deaths. Well, and that's at the point. So in order to understand the nature of what we're in, we need to gather information that tells us uh, and gives a sense of the accounts and experience of everyone who's collecting a body. I don't care what kind of, whether it's COVID or not. So we need to get the background of this. So we need to know, and one thing undertakers are involved with is they have to go collect the bodies or aware of where they are at hospitals, congregate living facilities like senior citizen centers and veteran homes and places where uh, occupational centers, and then also in residential settings. That will give you a picture of the level of actual that the system's in. So in a perfect world that was driven by and informed by a blue-collar, working-class perspective, you would have a dashboard that included your intubations, your hospitals, but then also the number of fatal heart attacks by borough and the number of 911 calls by borough. That would begin to give you a sense of the facts on the ground, which would help us all manage the risks we're involved with, and could inform the national conversation about when we need, when we might be able to think of returning to life as we knew it before COVID. Now, there have been numerous reports on how overwhelmed the funeral service providers are. Are they compiling data on, on what they're seeing, or are they just uh, trying to get their jobs done as, as quickly as possible? Uh, and, and do funeral directors have to take special precautions against transmission of, of the virus? Well, they have been very transparent. Uh, number one, they have a PPE crisis because and we need to, that's a whole other, could be a whole other show, the way that this this entire thing, you know, we've been, we've been told that this is a crisis, a public health crisis, is a crisis of scarcity. This has been said from the very beginning by the greed and scarcity that's been driving the United States for the entirety of my life. And so what's happening here is medical uh, people in the healthcare field, they were starved of the basic PPE requirement because 
We manage everything on real-time inventory. Don't put anything to waste by storing it, because that's capital we can't put in the Cayman Islands, boys and girls. And we've organized every aspect of our life that way. And no matter whether it's the uh, the delivery room for children being born to work or to put grandpa in the ground, we have managed scarcity as our guide star. That's our thing we pledge allegiance to. And so as a consequence, they don't have the things they need. This is something that's airborne. They have to be concerned about it. And here's another thing that they told me, which is, this airborne thing means that the families that have lost a loved one um, often break quarantine without thinking about it to go and discuss the final arrangements with their funeral director. And so that's one of the things that he asked me to get across in my reporting was that they needed to be mindful, the families did, that they themselves were likely contagious. And so they needed to try to do these things remotely and over the phone where possible. Now, the CDC's National Vital Statistics System ordered that deaths of confirmed COVID-19 or suspected COVID-19 no longer be reported as the immediate cause of death. Why? Well, what does the I CDC would... say is the immediate cause? There's, well, and so they want you to get identify the part of the anatomy that failed. So let's let's unpack, shall we review, because this is something that just doesn't get enough attention and the corporate news media, for a whole host of reasons, I think is reluctant to do it at this time of national emergency. But the CDC has consistently made matters worse. And this starts again uh, March 11th. The New York Nurses Association, the union that represents nurses in New York State, had a press conference. We carried in the chief leader. Um, and it, they were warning that the CDC's guidance uh, that N95 masks, which are the respiratory garb you wear, cover uh, yourself when you're involved with a clinical encounter with someone. Uh, prior to this, uh, this crisis, uh, you were to use only one, that would be one, for each clinical encounter, and then you would dispose of it properly. In fact, if you didn't do that, you'd get in trouble if you were a nurse. But the CDC, citing our national crisis and the need to manage inventory, suggested that under the crisis guidelines, you were to, I guess, adopt your N95 mask for the day, for the week, put it in a brown paper bag, or a bandana would do. Now, the nurses warned, being lowly nurses that they were, that if you used this as a standard across the country, you would spread the disease and that they would die. And that, boys and girls, is exactly what's happened, is happening, and will continue to happen until we actually unmask what the CDC is doing. I'm speaking to Bob Henley, who's a regular contributor to this show, talking about politics and related matters. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and, uh, and uh, the show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, Bob, are there guidelines for when a death can be attributed to COVID-19, even if the disease is not the immediate cause? I mean, right now we're well, hearing about people dying of strokes and, and related things because they're getting blood clots as a as a result of being infected by COVID-19. Right. All of this goes back to uh, the universe of testing. And so, so much of what we know about this and how we describe it, how we get a sense of it is based on the lack of testing, which is getting to be less of a problem, but still is a legacy issue from the several weeks that we've been in the midst of this. Um, and so 
there we didn't know, for instance, that the science that's been presented to us as a sure thing, as empirical, the things you should base your daily decisions on, have been constantly evolving. And so uh, a case in point, uh, and that's why when you say how it can be defined, what, what kind of definitions, uh, we just learned the other day that um, medical uh, professionals in California have now moved back the date of when our first known COVID case was to early February. Governor Cuomo today uh, brought this up, that the narrative has changed about when it was first occurring, when it was first manifest. Also, you have the challenge that there are 50 states and who knows how 3,000 some odd counties. And so the way that this is all going to be summed up is going to vary greatly. And there's going to be a great deal of data that's going to be missed. The problem is that the number that we're seeing on television, which is now defining everything. In fact, you see that 50,000, just across 50,000 deaths that, is, that the TV is telling us is what is the number of deaths. That is going to be the number that if it comes below 60,000, the Trump administration will say this was a success story, that they managed it well. Well, let's just look at the numbers. Um, in, New York, in, the, in, the, in New Jersey, uh, the, under, the funeral directors told me on an average um, month, New Jersey loses 6,000 individuals who die of all causes. Now there's an additional 4,000 so that's what's happening on that front. That's all different settings. Uh, in, in New York City, we know that, you know, you had this, these heart attacks that now were 10 times. So we can get just a rough sense of the scale of it. And it, it, whether or not it's a part of COVID or not, uh, what's more important is the, the, the top line, which is the, the additional number of deaths beyond what we would have expected, whether they're COVID or not because we risk uh, missing the forest and the trees by zeroing in on that narrow distinction. Did I answer your question? Okay, kind of. Uh, are, are you suggesting <laughs> that the, uh, the CDC's order on how deaths are reported may be politically influenced? I would say, and I put it in the word of the funeral director, because you know he, death is his business, right? that what he was concerned about is it would result in a false sense of security, which we would then extrapolate to being like, well, we certainly kicked uh, COVID's tail, didn't we? We managed another crisis. You see the flattening curve? Mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have a sense of its totality. I mean, I think to a large degree here that, and this is for people who are in New York and the tri-state region, um, you'll they'll get this, particularly if they're familiar with the EPA. You see, we had an exact um, corollary to this happened in 2001 when uh, lower Manhattan was decimated when the World Trade Center uh, collapsed after it was attacked. And everybody so, seems to be comparing the death rate here to 9-11, although 9-11 was in a specific place. This is all over the world. But, but I want it, but it's more insidious than, yes, that's true. But what's insidious about this is it's a lie on top of a lie. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, Rudy Giuliani and the Bush administration was faced with the possibility that Wall Street wouldn't be able to open. And we wanted to show the world that America was about business. And so no matter what, we were going to put it together. And so the EPA knew 
that the air quality was dangerous, but we didn't tell the people. And so what they did is they came up with a press release from EPA Governor uh, Christy Ty Women that the air was safe to breathe, boys and girls. And out they went, troopers, kids to school, teachers to teach, stockbrokers to manipulate and speculate, and builders to build, and there you go. And so, and now we have ads on television from law firms uh, inviting people who uh, have come up, have developed cancers as a result of, of being encouraged to go back right, to that area. That's that's right. We're in the, this is this is uh, miss, this is a case in point would be that so actually the death toll that everyone it's a, it's just like nine eleven. Uh, not quite. There's a little asterisk which people forget that more people have died since because the EPA lied to the people about how safe the air was to breathe. Now, why don't we just do that on MSNBC? I'd love to see Brian Williams. He's so bright. I enjoy him. But he could just say that and point out to people that the EPA is played in this particular pandemic by the CDC. Same part, same story, same propaganda. On, on another level, you suggest that while the corporate news media lionizes blue-collar first responders, it doesn't let them offer insights as to what's really going on and, and what needs to be done. It, it mostly relies on Governor Cuomo's and Governor Murphy's daily briefings, which until very recently relied entirely on hospital-centric data. Well, and so, yeah, that's the thing, is that to get ahead of this, what we need to do is have at the table in the way we do these things, the working class people that are doing the work and any successful manager entrepreneur, the ones that are really good, they know that. And so if they're not shoulder to shoulder with those people, they're aware that those are the people that are doing the work. And if anything, this entire tragedy needs to flip the pyramid that's been the United States because our whole definition of what's essential, right? You know, a hedge fund manager that's uh, manipulating money in and out of the country through the Cayman Islands, is that essential? How about the person bring you your pizza? How about the EMT? That's essential. So we've kind of upended that. And so we need to continue that analysis to make sure in the future that, that organized labor and the people that are doing the work have a role, because they have brains, in the way that we're responding to these life-threatening crises. California has twice the population of New York State, over four times that of New Jersey, but it has far lower infection rates and even lower fatality rates. Does that have anything to do with how California's government has treated the data and the science? Yeah, I think that it's, uh, it appears that uh, the, the local health officials acting in San Francisco saw the community spread uh, had the year of the elected officials and were able to have science drive public policy. What a thought and concept. They were ahead of the curve. They initiated the first round of these distancing and closures, beginning to pull back um, the way that we did business. Um, those of us who were following very closely what was happening in, in New York City know that there was a real tension developing between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. Um, over the question of closing the schools. And so in that weekend leading up to the governor, to Mayor de Blasio's decision to close the schools, Michael Mulgrew, the leader of the teachers union, UFT, was adamant that he wanted to see the schools close. And the mayor was resisted. Now, that resonated with me uh, because I knew that the UFT themselves and the leadership uh, bear a tremendous 
uh, burden because at another time in 2001, when um, the chief ghoul, Rudy Giuliani, I don't know what else to call him, but he had decided to open up 29 schools in, uh, and this is important for people to know, if your schools were south of Houston um, and then in western Brooklyn, um, those 29, I guess with 29 schools, K through 12, about 2,500 teachers and support staff and 19,000 students were all sent into hot zone schools. And some of them have died. Some of them are, 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 are uh, chronically ill. Um, and so this is a dimension to this that, you know, I think informed the decision by the teachers union to be militant about this. And I think it's a, I know that there's people more schooled in this epidemiological stuff than myself who have called into question, did the state of New York and New York City act late? Uh, that's certainly an opinion that's been expressed by people smarter than myself. I don't know if it's at that point it's important to dwell on because we're in the middle of this fight for our life. But um, it, it would appear that that's the case, that California had a case where uh, the, the medical and public health imperative was able to drive po public policy quicker. Now, testing has been a big, big issue in the news. New York State leads the country in testing, over 670,000 tested so far. But that's still less than 3.5% of the state's population. And in New Jersey, the rate of testing is less than 2.5%. How much testing is needed? Should I be uh, worried about not being tested? Well, here's here's the crazy part of this. And this, this is like a two-part question. One is, the status of the testing itself is is wall over the place. So there are dear friends of mine who've gotten tested, who, who had it, who got a negative test, people that have tested positive that was a false positive. It is all over the map. And so it's important to understand that we have really let our public health system deteriorate. So the ability, because of the fact that we made Healthcare, you know, like a personal choice. Oh, I love my health insurance company. Oh, you don't have health care? That's too bad. That whole attitude, that whole ethos has resulted that we don't really have very good surveillance on the population in general in terms of what people are feeling, what people are experiencing. So um, we have cut back on, I mean, how many stories have I done about urban hospitals closing, rural hospitals closing? I mean, Leonard, it's been 20 years of, of of uh, the greed and avarice of this country shutting down all these facilities. How many protests by DC 37, the local that represents community frontline healthcare workers, where they're fighting for storefronts and for the most rudimentary, the work of Katie McFadden in Brooklyn, all these people that are doing this work to fight for the, the uh, basic healthcare and, and basic healthcare surveillance and um, uh, in these communities that are poor, and we cut all that back, and then we're surprised that this is worth getting a foothold. So when I say to you about the testing, it's, it's relative. What we need to have here is universal health care, not as some altruistic, utopian, New Testament feel-good thing, but as a basic public health requirement, because we have to establish a kind of baseline for the entire population, even if their folks are undocumented. Why would federal or state officials cite potentially misleading numbers? Are, are they just doing the best that they can with what's available to them? And are state officials in badly affected uh, states like New York and New Jersey at odds with federal officials? Well, they're, they're in this very difficult situation where they have to uh, 
speak truth to power, but not in a way that they cut the supply line off. So it's a very difficult dance. And so they have to buy into the delusion in the White House, the degree to which they have something pending in the way of aid. I would submit to you that a crime against humanity was perpetrated by um, Donald Trump, and he should be prosecuted. I mean, we were just not thinking big enough. Uh, this are they de- the deliberately state. misleading the public? Are you saying that? Well, I mean, obviously, I this week he he, uh, he he suggested this week that the virus, quote, might not come back at all in the fall. And uh, oh, even he, his own scientists disagreed with that. Right. And then right. he suggested right. yesterday about injecting disinfectant into a person uh, infected right. with coronavirus or hitting the body with ultraviolet or another kind of powerful light. Yes, I would say that he's a, your Jonestown type leader. Yes, everything coming out of the serpent's mouth is meant to create mayhem, destruction, and pain. I think we can assume that. You asked me about the mid-level management in the form of our governors, and I believe that they're with these built-in limitations to the way power structures have been always arranged in this country. And the other legacy of this is it's not that it's deliberate, but you have to look at the legacy of the shutdowns of all these hospitals. You have to look at the fact that, um, and listen, do I think that I uh, that that go, that uh, Governor uh, Cuomo is kind of like Scrooge? He's woken up at the end and he understands how the world is connected. I do, I do believe there's been a transformation. I've watched it every day. I mean, he was fighting universal health care. Uh, Senator Rivera had talked about it. Uh, um, and uh, we have uh, Gottfried had been advocating for universal health care for New York State for years. We got resistance from the governor. And then when he was faced with a crisis where thousands of people were dying with a sign of his pen, he was doing things like we're going to get the private sector hospitals, proprietarial and the nonprofits and municipals to work together as one. Well, what do you think that was? Universal care. Well, Consistency is the hobgoblin, whatever. Um, this is, and now he is uh, the hero of so many people. People are talking about him as a potential vice presidential candidate or even a presidential candidate. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're somebody. What comedy's my. My guest is Bob Henley, and I'm not sure that this conversation is going to ease anybody's troubling mind. But before we get back to this interview, Bob, um, we, the, as we've been discussing, the coronavirus has upended almost every aspect of life as we know it. And for a small listener-supported station like WBAI, it's been particularly devastating. Uh, and that's why we uh, have been started asking anyone who can afford to step up right now and go to our website, WBAI.org 
or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and, and the station on the air. Baba, I'm sure that you've observed firsthand how the pandemic is affecting independent media. Well, I would say that, uh, and I just shout out, there's so many great shows. Jeff Simmons' show, there's just so many. John Cain, there's just, um, there's just so many uh, that offer this unique window onto this unprecedented times. I will say that um, that we have to also look at this, uh, and I, I was, the theme is scarcity, right? So one of the things that's happened over the arc of my life as a journalist is the disappearance of local media. And we've addressed this before, but I think by some estimates, 47% of the local reporters uh, have uh, no longer work in the field. And so there's been a contraction. I mean, imagine uh, I'm 64. When I was 17, I worked for the Ramsey Morrow Reporter uh, covering um, Ramsey. And I remember this is Bergen County. And I remember that there were three other adults who I looked up to at the time who were uh, journeymen and women in their field who supported children. Um, uh, that went to college, and these adults, who were you know 20 years older than myself, were journalists. They were local reporters who had jobs and had a car and had a life, and that all disappeared. That architecture, for the most part, disappeared. As uh, we had a situation where uh, broadcast licenses became property, they used to be, um, they still should be, uh, a privilege, a license that the public owns, and that we let certain private entities. Uh, uh, use, but that's, those are supposed to be our airways. We lost that for the most part, with, ex- with the exception of holdouts like WBAI. And so with this lack of local reporting, should it be any surprise that we're having a kind of um, disastrous circumstance with local senior citizen centers where people are dying uh, by huge numbers, thousands and thousands, and there's very few places where there's a local reporter to, to witness the, the bodies being taken away. So I, I can't help but to think that there isn't some connection between our ability to know these things and our ability to prevent them and from stopping them. So um, just a reminder that we ask you to give us a call to show your support, 516-620-3602, or go to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make a uh, uh, say that the contribution is in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Um, and from all of us at the station, thank you so much. I want to talk a bit about unemployment insurance because sure. uh, uh, now, is it does it apply equally to people who have been laid off and, and people who have been sick and, and can't go to work? Well, this is such a... Um a specialized field, and it's very important to talk about the crisis this whole system is in. So there's a, there's buckets of circumstances, right? People in, in, who have different, uh, there could be someone who was laid off or someone who's been furloughed. A lot of the federal legislation that went on earlier does have special cutouts and treatment for if you were fortunate to be in the airline industry. The, the bill that bailed those industries, those companies out, has a requirement that is a term and condition of getting the the aid from Congress, that they have to keep the workforce intact. Um, but that's not the same. Um, it's not across the board. We, we know that, for instance, there's some unemployment, individ- some companies, if your company has been um, impacted and you had a, uh, owners that were smart and got in line and understand the way it works, uh, my brother Andrew, who does um, 
uh, set preparation um, and fireproofing for Broadway theaters. He got a situation where the place closed because Broadway closed, but he's able to get some kind of additional amount of money in addition to his unemployment. So it's very different, and I can't make a, a universal statement about it, but it's all in crisis. Because, you know, imagine that you're in a plane that's descending without, where you have no gauges. We really don't know. We don't have situational awareness to understand where we're really at in terms of the economy because the measures are broken and the systems by which people call in, we hear all the time. That's the number one complaint that governors are fielding right now. Those systems have kind of melted down. So it's really anyone's guess about the status of it. What are the people who you write about in the union saying? Because there, there were another 4.4 million new jobless claims made in, uh, in the week ending April 18th last week. Uh, new claims over the past five weeks exceed 26 million. Many of them are, I'm sure, union employees. How did New York and New Jersey compare with other states, uh, especially in light of the impact of the pandemic here? Well, you have to look at there are certain people that are fortunate, uh, fortunately insulated from it. I mean, oddly enough, journalists and uh, people like you and I that do this kind of thing, we're insulated from it to some degree. But, for instance, at the chief, there's a, you know, we took a 20 percent pay cut, which is, you know, and we all are committed to the paper. And it's been around since 1897. And that's what you do. I mean, that's what's required of being in a privileged situation where you have a going concern, right? Everybody works together, takes less, we get through it together. That's what it's about. Um, but there are other circumstances where people are in, um, uh, don't have kind of casual relationship to um, a workplace or employment. So they're cash employees. So even in this airline bailout, there's a whole bunch of people that are working off tips, right? Who may mm -hmm. move bags from place to place. So, um, and so in New Jersey, New York, the degree to which we have uh, uh, people that can commute, uh, can, can work from home remotely, uh, we're spared a bit. But the degree to which you have any kind of manufacturing, um, and that's why you're seeing now in the states in the Midwest that we're ignoring this whole issue, you're seeing the meat processing plants and the food processing plants, you're seeing this tremendous hit that's happening right now. So it, it, there's a number of variables. A lot of it has to do with the ability of your workforce to work remotely. And then also uh, one of the things that's been most unfair about this whole thing is that the very communities that have the highest prevalence of pre-existing uh, conditions, asthma, diabetes, and the rest, are also the communities that have the highest um, incidence of essential workers who have to go out in the transit sector, in the food distribution center, working in the pharmacies, working in the hospitals, working to care for people in assisted living and in the senior centers. So you see where these inequities all reinforce each other. So we really need a major radical, and I did this piece for Salon called uh, a Revolution by Pandemic. We have to upend all of this to get our arms around this health crisis. And, and that's why the, one of the things we're hearing right now, for instance, is the insecurity has now even permeated into the civil service. We had this this, this thing where uh, Mitch McConnell errantly said that states should, who are in trouble with cash flow should just declare bankruptcy, an ignorant and inaccurate statement, because I can't. But even now in the civil service, there's words uh, and concerns about layoffs. So it's not like anybody's really insulated.
Now, McConnell uh, has even been criticized, believe it or not, by Republicans. Peter King, um, a Republican House member, called him the Marie Antoinette of the Senate. And Andrew <laughs> Cuomo said of his comment, quote, that is one of the saddest, really dumb comments of all time. But it's obviously a politically motivated because the states that would be most affected uh, uh, by a cutoff of, of federal funds are, are the blue states, ironically, the ones mm -hmm. that contribute most money to the federal government. Right. And we used to do programs like this, talking about the fact that actually the tri-state region, that's Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, historically, for as long as I've been gathering facts and reporting them publicly, were always the donor states, right? But I will tell you that looking at the latest maps of the outbreak, where it's turning orange, more orange, and uh, in the rest, you're seeing it starting getting putting in, particularly around these communities that are involved with meat processing. So um, the other critical part of this is that, um, as Governor Cuomo, I think in one of his uh, finest moments today, he pointed out the fact that uh, it's prohibited by the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, for states to declare bankruptcy. So you, that's just a non-starter. Moreover, uh, the, um, the Title IX bankruptcy that we see that cities can do, and this is where the right loves this, because this is what's driving this, is it permits cities like Detroit to get out, out from underneath their public pension obligations, which I would submit to you is really what's driving uh, Mitch McConnell, because they've been on a search-destroy mission to annihilate anything that pushes back against the vulture capitalists that they represent. And the unions, the public unions particularly, that everyone likes to lionize, are the biggest impediment right now to the far right-wing takeover that they've been doing for a while. The systems for filing unemployment claims have failed to keep up with the numbers needing help. You've seen all these TV reports of people calling and being uh, just cut off. Um, uh, New York State uses software for unemployment applications that was written in the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, it, well, this also, you know, um, the reality is that we're struggling as we live, right? So all the dumb things we did and all the mistakes we made historically, I mean, I, there's so many, it's like fish in a barrel, uh, these technical ideas. Here's one that will be a, the civil servants that are going to kick out of. Rudy Giuliani was obsessed that people who are regular civil servants might try to steal time. So he came up with something called city time, which was going to be a futuristic 21st century biometric way of making sure that you didn't get over on the government. And so not only did it turn out to blow up into the largest municipal fraud in the history of the United States and several hundred millions of dollars in contract fraud under Mayor Bloomberg, but it turned out that they had to stop using the palm screener because uh, they ignored, once again, what just regular mechanics and EMTs were saying, that it might be something where people could transmit disease. And don't you know, in the middle of COVID, they took them out of use. That's just one example. So to your point about the lack of the infrastructure for um, unemployment, consider in New York City some 300,000 civil servants we want to make sure the mayor said this. I believe the agency heads believe this. They want to make sure that only those workers that need to go and work at their um, locations in out in the community do so, and that people that can work from home work from home. But the reality is, the city 
doesn't have sufficient number of laptops licensed to do this work. So Executive Director DC37 Henry Garrido pointed out to me, thousands of people who could technologically work from home have to go into their office, putting themselves and their families at risk, because the city has the same kind of antiquated equipment that the state does. And, and there have been many reports about problems getting protective hospitals or, or transit workers or police getting uh, the protective gear. Well, now this is another combination CDC fiasco, just to review what happened here, because it's important. Because, again, the whole United States is really lower Manhattan on, uh, on September 12th, 2001, really. And if you look at this, so... Early on, I would say months ago, I started monitoring the TWU, um, you know, chat rooms and the rest. That's the Transfer Workers Union. They represent the thousands of workers that run the subways and buses. And there was this general thing uh, popping up where members were concerned about um, this question of COVID and they wanted to wear masks. And so managers were uh, disciplining them and saying, well, your uniform doesn't include the mask. So uh, the union spoke up on behalf of members wanting to wear masks. And then I asked Mayor de Blasio, who, although he does not control the subways, I, this was an issue that was going to come up throughout the civil service where people in the city's employee have to work out in the environment. And at that time, citing, again, CDC guidance, that's right, CDC guidance, said that um, the CDC told us that we should not um, use masks if we were healthy, and masks should be reserved, there's that scarcity work again, managing the inventory, not the crisis, for healthcare professionals. And so they didn't want people wearing masks. Then over time, as weeks went by and the bodies mounted up and the doctors got sick and the nurses died, don't you know everyone needs to wear a mask? Do you see a pattern here, Leonard? Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Bob Henley. <laughs> We're talking about uh, the, the current situation from a, a slightly I made you laugh at the pandemic. <laughs> How can scientists at the CDC and other federal agencies give us a complete picture uh, if the, the president seems to be, what word do I want to use, prevaricating, lying, interfering with their work? And, and yeah, how I mean, I, could yeah. we know if they, if they were not? Well, I think that what is happening is that the best they can, the media is isolating him as a special attraction. You know, like when you used to go and at the PTA fundraiser, uh, you have a chance to, for $5, throw a beanbag and try to dunk the clown in the big tank of water. That's kind of where we are, right? I mean, nobody really takes him seriously. There are some individuals like who will take something on his advice and then they die and it's reported. But um, I guess we could just isolate him, right, psychologically uh, through the media. Uh, but basically what has to happen is we have to make sure that the people that are doing the work need to inform the agenda. That's the simplest way I can put it, so that we can shorten the period of time between the problems that we're seeing and the resolutions because we respect working people as being able to have a role in calling the shots. Dr. Rich, Rick Bright, uh, an HHS official who directed the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority and oversaw coronavirus vaccine development, was demoted. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story oh, yeah. because I think most people have heard the news. But, but we should point out on the plus side that the Trump administration did appoint Ryan Harrison, the former 
labradoodle <laughs> breeder to be the lead coordinator for the federal government's response to the pandemic. Now, I, I want to address another thing. Many people in New York, in this area, and in New Jersey as well, are renters. So what's going to happen here? Well, that came up uh, today. Uh, in the, uh, landlords going to have to start evicting people? Well, they can't right now. And so what is happening is one month. couple that happens on two levels. They, they, there's two things. One is the administrative state, state that would be the, go, the government and civil court function that does that. That's not functioning. Uh, number two, there's been these executive orders. Uh, there was just a today someone asked Governor Cuomo about this, and there's a thought now that they will, for the case of thinking in terms of um, first, let's deal with people that have a mortgage. So there's a discussion about adding the period of time of the state emergency whenever it finally comes out to be, 90 days, 120 days, whatever it is, add that into the end of the mortgage um, and then not penalizing people kind of like, and gosh, I sure wish they'd been able to do that after the Great Recession because that was a single base mistake that Barack Obama made. Um, that was was that he did not declare a, a, a moratorium on foreclosures. Now, for renters, uh, the mayor de Blasio is asking for a freeze on um, on rents, and then there's a, a growing movement, and I think it's one that deserves support of people who are tenants organizing together, and then insisting on a unified rent strike, and then being able to come up with terms and conditions. Because this is another example of flipping the pyramid. This is where, um, if we have the power and courage to act in concert in support of one another. We can flip the power dynamic of the current circumstance. Now, Bob, we have just about a minute left, but uh, if you watch the news, uh, you there are only really two kinds of stories that you see: coronavirus and the weather. So right. this past Wednesday, are there any other important things happening? I mean, we were reminded a bit uh, the other day. Uh, that uh, of the during on the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day in 1970, and the Trump administration uh, continues to cut back he, despite this other crisis on um, regulations that were enacted to protect public right. health, including environmental safety standards. So, do you think well, the administration is trying to capitalize on the pandemic? Well, of course they are. They're trying to use every and and this business of having the states compete against each other for PPE and ventilators and then have this private line of uh, speculation where the administration, they are pandemic profiteers. That's what you got to call them. That's what they are. Um, and then the other big news story is that the oil price is dropping like they are. The only good news about this is it's one hell of a dress rehearsal for global warming. Actually, my local gas station is charging just as much as it ever did. Bob, it's always a pleasure talking to you, even thank you. if what we're talking about is really depressing. We'll see you soon. All right. All right. Thanks. Take and, care. And that brings us to the end of today's show. A special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who prepared the segment, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their innumerable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access, access past shows streaming on demand 
at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show page on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, lenderlopateatlarge.com. We'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you would like to send me your comments about any of our shows, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned before, WBAI is in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. We're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go to our website, WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. And one way to support us is by becoming a sustaining member or what we call a WBAI buddy, a BAI buddy. Buddies are members of the station who spread their support uh, out over the the, the course of the year uh, through a monthly contribution of $10, $20, or any amount. Uh, Remember, we don't receive money from other sources, uh, uh, other radio stations, even public radio stations, public television. uh, They uh, they take money from... Actually, they run ads in many cases. They take money from foundations, which sometimes uh, have all sorts of... uh, demand certain things. We only go to you, our listeners, for support. And uh, we uh, we hope that uh, you will keep that in mind when we ask you for your support. And also, as far as BAI buddies are concerned, it allows us to plan for the future because, you know, we've had any number of economic crises over the years. If we know that they, that There's going to be a certain amount of money coming in every week, even if it's just $10 from a bunch of people. uh, That really helps. So if you can uh, see your way to $10 a month or $20 a month or any amount that you're comfortable with, please give us that call. And the number again, 516-620-3602 or go to our website, WBAI.org. The important thing is to... um, to do your part to keep this station going, not just this show, but uh, all the the very valuable shows that you you can hear on the station. And um, we hope that if you do it uh, during this show, that you you, uh, say that you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We are preempted on Monday for special WBAI programming, but we hope you'll join us on Tuesday when Michael Patrick McDonald will discuss the uh, way that the coronavirus is affecting Ireland and the UK. Remember, people are actually burning down 5G towers. A lot of misinformation out there. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.